0: Welcome to this week's Think Jewish. This week's Torah portion is the Torah portion of Bo, the third Torah portion of the book of Exodus. However, this week we're going to divert from the Torah portion because this Wednesday is Rosh Chodesh Shvat. It is the month of Shvat, and on the 10th day of the month of Shvat in 1950 um in 1950 was when the previous Rebbe passed away and the Rebbe ascended to leadership. So, I want to tell you a little bit of an interesting history of four Maimarim, four Hasidic discourses of the previous Rebbe, which is called Hemshech Hailula. What does Hemshech HaHilula mean? Hemshech Hailula Hilula Hilula is a very respectful way of referring to the passing of a righteous person. So, Hemshech means a series. In the beginning, there would be a one-mimer every week. And then later on, by the fourth Lubavitcher Rebbe, and more so by the fifth Lubavitcher Rebbe, there started this concept of a hemshech, a series. Uh, So much so that the fifth Lubavitcher Rebbe, two of his famous ones, one lasted for two and a half years, another one lasted for five and a half years. So we're talking about long series of teachings. So this one, this what we're talking about today, is a hemshach a series so let me share with you what happened um the previous rebbe the previous rebbe had a um had a stroke and because of that uh, the world had a difficulty understanding his speech so in the later years he would actually deliver his Maimarim, his classic discourse in writing he would put it in writing give it to his son-in-law the rebbe The Rebbe would add on footnotes of where quotes came from so that those learning can look it up in its source, and it would be printed. And the previous Rebbe would say for a date for when he wants this printed. And that was instead of orally delivering the mimer, he gave it in writing. The previous Rebbe gave the Rebbe four such mimerim of one series. And the first one was to be dated and given out for the 10th day of Shavat, the last diary entry that the Rebbe has in his physical contact with his father-in-law the previous Rebbe he writes that it was Friday before Shabbos and I brought in the printed mimer and put it on the Rebbe's desk and the previous Rebbe lifted his hand and nodded with his head hours later the previous Rebbe in the early morning of Shabbat, Parsh's Bo, the 10th of Shvat, in 1950, passed away. And these four Maimorim became known as the Hemshech HaHilula, the series of the passing of the previous Rebbe. The Rebbe, starting in 1951, this four Maimorim were made up of 20 chapters. The Rebbe's annual discourse of that day, the 10th of Shvat, the day that his Rebbe passed away and the day that he became Rebbe, was always with the same opening verse, I have come to my garden, and every single year he focused his entire Mimer on another chapter of the previous Rebbe's Mimer. So that means in 1951, the Rebbe's mimer is built upon Chapter 1 of the original four mimerim of his predecessor and father-in-law, the previous Rebbe. In 1952, it the continued, the second chapter, the third chapter. In 1970, the Rebbe delivered his 20th mimer of Ba'asilegani Gani on the th- 20th chapter of his Rebbe's mimer. In 1971, he started again. And again through the 20. So we're now in 2015. We're in the fourth cycle. And this is the fifth chapter. Right? Count your years. So this year, we're focusing on the fifth chapter. And in order to understand well and have a relationship with this day, so we're looking at the Rebbe's Mimer from... 1955 and 1975 because those two Maimorim, the Rebbe, delivered based upon this year's chapter. Okay, so now you understand that we're not talking about the Parsha. This week we're going to be talking about the Rebbe's Mimer of 1955. Next week we'll be talking about the Rebbe's Mimer, God willing, of 1975. Okay, so now you understand where we're going. So let me share with you one of the themes of the original mime of the previous Rebbe. It's a long mimer. It's four mimer, each one made up of five chapters, a total of 20 chapters with a lot, a lot of details and insight. The Rebbe wrote himself later that questions that I didn't understand when I was preparing it for print after what happened on that day, I now understand why the previous Rebbe used certain terminology that he used. So this is a deep mimer, a deep four Okay, so let's talk about one concept, one major theme of the mimer which is important for us to understand. So we're focusing now on the fifth chapter which is the last chapter of the first mimer so we're going to focus on one of the main themes of the first mimer and that is as follows the purpose of life everyone wants to know what is the purpose of life the torah tells us what the purpose of life how would the torah not guide us in what our purpose of life is and it explains like this the purpose of life is to create from ourselves our environment and the entire world a home for God. Very simple. sot lo yitparach dira betachtonim To make for him, blessed be he, a dwelling place, an abode in this nether world. That was the whole purpose of creation. And that's why God didn't stop by the spiritual worlds. He went until the absolute darkness of the physical world. And here, He placed man, and here he gave man the Torah and the mitzvot for us to go ahead and transform of our own arrogant egocentric life and the world around us into a transparent home for God. Now, when we do this through Torah study and mitzvah observance, what we're doing is we are engaging with the linear light of God. In other words, what does that mean? So a little bit just quickly to understand when we talk about light you're going to be introduced now to the linear light and the infinite circular light. You've heard this from me before in other classes. The linear light is the contracted light which becomes the light and the life source which manifests itself and closes itself within creation. So this linear light has a top and a bottom. It has layers upon layers, stronger and weaker. The layer and the level of this finite linear light, which shines and reveals itself in the spiritual world, is going to be a lot greater than that which reveals itself in the physical world. That which reveals itself of this linear light within the human being is going to be far greater of that which manifests itself and clothes itself within the animal, which is greater than that which clothes itself within the plant, which is greater than that clothes itself within the inanimate. We know that there's simply halacha of different rooms which have different holiness. There's the Holy of Holies. There's the front room, there's the courtyard, there's Temple Mount, there's Jerusalem, there's the Israel, there is the world. There is in this very shul, this room, which has absolute holiness. There are certain things you're not allowed to do in this room, because this is a house of study and of prayer. On the other hand, the office, you could do. Forgive me, but in the restroom, you're not allowed to even talk or think words of Torah. All these different layers and dimensions of the creation nurtures itself off the linear light which also has all these layers upon layers. So when we're studying Torah and mitzvot, there are different levels for different people. If you look in the laws of studying Torah, you'll see clearly that the law is different for someone who has the capacity time-wise and intellectual-wise to learn more versus those who don't. And the same thing with all the different Torah and mitzvot. So the fact that it has different layers means that it's relating to a divine light which can comprehend and relate to layers. Now when we're looking to make a home for God we're not looking just to make a home for the outer linear layer, which relates to top and bottoms, greater and weaker. Rather, we're also looking to draw into this world, into ourselves and into the world around us, the infinite circular light. Now to understand what the infinite circular light, there's a phrase in Hebrew, kenhu, as its name, so it is. The definition of the infinite circular light means that it has no top and no bottom. It equally encompasses from the greatest of spiritual realms to the lowest of this physical realm in one equal circle. Because it in itself has neither top nor bottom, greater nor lesser. And therefore when it reveals itself, the words that the previous Rebbe quotes in the Mimer from the teaching of Kabbalah is that it reveals itself in all worlds equally. Which means that in the highest of worlds, way beyond angels, we're talking way beyond Sfirot, we're talking about in the highest of primordial worlds. And this physical world of darkness is absolutely equal to the infinite circular light and the infinite circular light reveals itself to everything equally it is regardless of the recipient it is the mimer wants to tell us and it questions how do we provoke engage and draw into this home that we're making for God, how do we draw and engage and provoke the infinite circular light? Because Torah has, like we said, its different limitations and different capacities of laws, so therefore the fact that it has differences tells us that it relates to the linear light the way we experience it. So what is it that the Jew can do in his service to God that would provoke, engage, and draw into his own life and into the environment around him and through that into the entire world, the infinite circular light. And in answer to this question, the previous Rebbe introduces us to what the Zohar says is skafia and is hapcha and that through his kafia and through his hapcha is what we draw and reveal the infinite circular light in all worlds equally. What is, is kafia? What is, is hapcha? The word kafia means to subdue. The word hapcha means to transform. That means like this: when we study Torah, and we do mitzvot in itself, we are engaging with the linear light. However, when we engage with the inner battle of subduing the inner passion, the inner ego, the inner self-will gone array, it is that war of the subduing and the transforming which engages into the infinite circular light. Okay? So now we have the answer of how we engage. Let's understand a little bit more. In order that there can be freedom of will, and in order that there be this service of iskafya, subduing, and ishapcha, transforming, God created the other side, the dark side. Now what is the other side and the dark side? In simple, terms. In simple terms, it is the spirit of folly, it is the foolishness that the other side approaches the Jew with this foolish paradigm. And if you don't keep kosher, you're not a Jew? You have to keep Shabbat to be Jewish? In other words, the paradigm of foolishness with which the other side tries to confuse us with a virtual reality is that there is no difference in a face-to-face relationship with God and a back-to-back relationship to God. It's trying to fool us into that having a relationship face-to-face with God through studying His Torah and observing His mitzvahs and the back-to-back relationship to God, when we turn our back and we show our stiff neck of stubbornness to walk away from the will of God, God's Torah and mitzvot, they both are equal to us. And with that foolishness, the Yetzirah, the other side, begins to tell us, Shatnish, don't worry, it doesn't matter. So you didn't wake up to shul today. You're not Jewish. What happened? Your beard fell off. It's okay. So it wasn't exactly the Ashkacha, which should have been perfect. It's okay. You're still a good boy. You're still a good girl. This paradigm of foolishness is where this world of Eskafya and Eshapcha has to battle. Now let's understand this. Were any Jew to clearly see and feel the difference of the face-to-face Relationship and love and closeness and embodiment and hug between God and us when we study his Torah and do his mitzvahs versus the suffocation of the soul when we turn our back on Torah and mitzvot, no Jew would ever do anything but study Torah and do mitzvot. By the way, do mitzvot also means to earn an honest living. But that's how you would approach it. Because all I want in my life is to have this loving embrace with God in a face-to-face relationship. Thus the battle of life becomes the battle against the foolishness of the paradigm of virtual reality of the other side. That's what the Iska'fia and the Ishapcha all boils down to. Now we have to ask What is, how do we wage this war, and what is the uh, artillery within, uh, the weapons within our artillery, to go ahead and fight this war? Hashem has to have given us this power to be able to fight the foolishness of of the other side, the unholy foolishness. I just want to stick in something which I I actually don't even have in my notes, but I've mentioned this to you more than once. There's a movie out there called The Brilliant Mind. It's the true story of a mathematician called Nash. And uh, this Nash was suffering from, he he lived in a world, his mind wasn't, uh, he was living in a virtual reality where there were people in his world that really didn't exist. A college roommate, a college roommate's niece, it just didn't exist. He was uh, just... And at one point, he went on, they put him on electric shocks, they gave him medicine, returned them to his wife. And then after that, he, because his wife's pain and living with him under these strong medicines, he decided he's stopping to take the medicine and sure enough, he goes back into this whole thing he has with newspapers and letters and all the stuff and mathematics of how he's figuring out the Russian secrets. When this comes to light, The doctor is back, and now they're discussing whether they should resubmit him into the hospital. And he's begging his wife, don't. And he tells his wife these words. What I do is solve problems with my mind. That's what I was trained to do. Allow me to solve this problem with my mind. The doctor turns around to him and says, don't you understand? Your mind is the problem. I just want you to remember that piece of the movie for a moment as we discuss this. Not always can we battle foolishness with wisdom. And that's what we're going to deal with here. If you look into the title of today, it's the beauty of foolishness when rationality is not enough bear that little scene of the movie in mind and let's move forward with the teaching so first of all the answer is that there is a foolishness within our soul a holy foolishness which is to battle the unholy foolishness of the other side but i'm going to start with the end instead of beginning with the beginning of the teaching I want to jump straight and start with the end of the teaching. And I want to share with you why. Most of us have a a Steven Spielberg scene or a Stephen King chapter with all the gory details when we talk about God versus Satan. We have this huge thing, oh, here we go. The Rabbi is talking about the battle of the original sin and all the mankind's and evils and axes of evil. Whoa, calm down. Let me tell you how the previous Rebbe very simply lines up the battle of the unholy foolishness and the holy foolishness. And it works out very simple. In our life, we have our eating schedule, our work schedule, and our sleeping schedule engraved in stone. However, our spiritual schedule, i.e., our prayer schedule or our Torah study schedule or our visit the elderly or visit the hospital, the sick in the hospital schedule is very often, very often not engraved in stone. The latter schedule will always take the brunt of our being busy. We eat every single day. We sleep every single day. And we work every single day. Rarely does that schedule get pushed off. However, the first thing that comes to mind when it's a busy season is what? I really don't have time to go to the morning minion to pray. I'm sorry but this week it's impossible for me to go to a Torah study class. Now this concept of a time schedule being etched in stone is what we're going to call today this stubborn foolishness. It's untouchable. So every single person, there are those that tell their secretary, I'll be having lunch now, followed by my siesta. Please hold all my calls and don't allow any visitor in. And the secretary knows far better than to mess with that schedule. Then there are those people who will let the secretary know, the rabbi just showed up, please hold all my calls, don't allow any visitors in, I'm going to be doing my weekly study with him. Or, please, from 315 till 3.30, hold all my calls, I must do my afternoon Mincha services. Now, this foolishness of telling your secretary, no calls, no visitors, under no circumstances, that's the battleground. What do we use it for? Do we use it for our lunch, siesta, or even our daily exercise? Or do we use it for, I'm sorry, I really can't meet with you at 8.30 in the morning because 8 o'clock I do my minyan, I pray in the shul, and I won't be in my office until 8.45. Sorry, I just can't do it. It's untouchable. I must go pray every day. You must take your lunch. I must do my prayer. I'm sorry, Wednesday I have a lunch and learn with my rabbi. I will not be able to meet with you then. That's where the foolishness, the holy foolishness, is going to go to battle with the unholy foolishness. Which is engraved as the ultimate fact of life. Untouchable. Okay? So please, delete all the gory scenes of all these beautiful effects of the movies of Satan. and It's that simple. Where do you lie engraved? to the irrational, transrational commitment and dedication. Is it in your pursuit of your physical schedule or is it your spiritual diet? Now I ask of you, what could be more foolish than to keep on postponing your eternal business of Torah and mitzvahs for this world and the world to come for your children, grandchildren and great-grandchildren for your temporary life business of earning another dollar. That's how the previous Rebbe lines this up. So please don't start thinking of your worst sins and your worst battles. It's just very simple. Which is your pragmatic, untouchable side? And which is a pushover? Okay? Now let's go further. I have one more introduction to make. And that last introduction is that the previous Rebbe... He introduces the fact that how do you battle iskafia and ishapcha, subduing and transforming. It's not by intellect versus foolishness, it's got to be by foolishness versus foolishness. You're going to have to find within yourself the transrational, illogical, foolish commitment and dedication of the soul to battle against the foolish virtual paradigm of the other side. The Rebbe in his Maimer doesn't just talk about the fact that it is so but he is exploring the how and the why do we need the iskafia and his hapcha, that holy foolishness to connect us with the true infinite circular light in creating this as the true home for the essence of God. Okay? People are with me so far? You with me? Jacob? Okay. <laughs> it gets better. Let's go ahead. So, the previous Rebbe introduces the concept of holy foolishness with a quote, a story from the Talmud in tractic Tubat, in Tubat on page 17, side A, and I will actually read to you what it says. They tell of Rab Judah bar Eli, the son of Eli, that he used to take a myrtle twig. Hadassim from Sukkot. He used to take a myrtle twig and dance before the bride and say, beautiful and graceful bride. Rab Samuel, the son of Rab Isaac, danced with three wigs, three twigs. Rashi says that he juggled. Three twigs. Rab Zerah said of Rab Shmuel, the old man is putting us to shame. Okay. Now, fast forward, when he died, when Rab Shmuel, the jugular of the, of the three Hadassim, myrtle twigs, in front of the Kala, when he died, a pillar of fire came between him and the whole rest of the world. And there is a tradition that a pillar of fire has made such a separation only either for one in a generation or for two in a generation only. Rab Zahra said, His twig benefited the old man. And some say that he said his habit benefited the old man. And some say his folly benefited the old man. Now if you want to know why there's three he says, because they all come from the same word. There's a shot, the twig of the branch, of of the myrtle branch. There is shita, your custom. And there is stut, folly. It's all the same. The Rebbe explains the Gemara to be simply saying that his foolish custom of dancing with a twig is what brought him this infinite light. So here we go. Let's talk about this, the Gemara. Okay? Number one, you know that this isn't just foolishness. Rabzerah said that he is shaming us. There is a clear law in Jewish Shulchan Aruch, the code of Jewish law, how a Torah scholar has to behave. Because a Torah scholar cannot desecrate the honor of his Torah scholarship, his Torah knowledge. And not only that, but when he behaves that way, he actually desecrates the honor of all Torah scholars. Sir Abzeros said, this man is shaming us. He's desecrating all Torah scholars by dancing as a juggler in front of the bride. This same Rab Zerah then says, no, it was this very stubborn foolishness of Rab Shmuel which drew upon him the infinite light which separated him from the foolish paradigm, virtual paradigm of the entire world. That's how the previous Rebbe introduces to us, not in Kabbalah, but right there in the Talmud. It talks about the power and beauty of holy foolishness. The Rebbe has a question. So Rab Shmuel realized that what that he has to go ahead and behave in such a stubborn, transrational, illogical commitment and dedication to Torah and Mitzvot, even where Abzera is squirming in his seat, feeling uncomfortable by what his colleague is doing. Rab Shmuel is dancing in front of the kala, and he's juggling his hadassim, his myrtle twigs. The Rebbe's question is, out of 613 commandments, yes, it says in Jewish law that you have to dance and rejoice in front of the bride on her wedding. But that's where he had to pick it. Why there? Why didn't he pick his foolish, his holy foolish stubbornness in another mitzvah? In learning Torah, or whatever it is, giving charity, why did he pick the wedding, dancing in front of the kala, That's what Abshul Shmuel decided. I got to go all out. This is it. And the Rebbe tells us the answer lies hidden in his previous in his Rebbe's mimer, because the previous Rebbe in his mimer quotes the blessing that you give to a chattan and a kala, a bride and a groom on their wedding. What is that blessing? The blessing is it should be a binyan adiad, an eternal and everlasting edifice. What makes a wedding an eternal and everlasting edifice? The answer is kids. Because from a marriage comes kids who have kids who have kids, and that is what makes the wedding, the marriage, an eternal edifice. Now, you should know that in the works of Hasidism and Kabbalah, the service of mankind has to be in sync with the divine light that he or she is drawing down. Because the human being provokes and becomes the vessel through which the divine light of the occasion is transmitted. The wedding is the only place where the omnipotent eternal power of ex nihilo, creating something out of nothing, is experienced by the human being. This power of creating an eternal edifice is beyond human power. Human is limited and our work is limited. To be able to create something out of nothing, i.e. have kids. To be able to create it with the fingerprint of God's eternal um, omnipotence. It will go on and on and on and on. You and I are standing here. This is the eternal life of Adam and Eve. That is only because it is by the wedding where we draw down this infinite circular light and thus Rabbi Shmuel understood that in order to do this there has to be someone here who is going to behave in such a fashion which would make him the appropriate vessel to draw down this illogical infinite circular light and thus it is by the wedding. The Abshmuel did something, which his colleagues, scholars, Talmudas, Das, intellect, that's what Torah scholars are all about, intellect. They said, what are you doing? You're shaming us. And he understood he was. Because behaving foolish is a shame to intellect. However, there's two types of foolishness. There's a the foolishness which is beneath intellect, And then there's the foolishness, which transcends intellect. It's the illogical, absolute commitment to become a vessel to God. And thus we have this story in the Talmud, specifically by the wedding. Now, please understand, the Rebbe did not explain why this goes on by a wedding, just that we should have an interesting smile on a detail in the Talmud. What the Rebbe is actually telling us here very deeply is that the only way to be able to provoke, engage, and draw down that which is beyond the human capacity of logic, beyond the linear finite light of God, to be able to connect with the infinite circular light of God, even beyond that into the essence, we need to have an appropriate vessel of our behavior to be able to do that. Now because we are taught that the human being is created in the likeness and image of God, that means within us there is this talent and capacity for every single layer. And thus we have a service through which we can draw down, provoke, engage, and connect with the linear light. We also have within us that which allows us to connect with the infinite circular light and then we have the essence of our soul which allows us to provoke engage connect and open ourselves up to become the home for the essence of god that is the purpose of life and creation that is the bridge to mashiach because that's what mashiach is all about to bring the essence of God into the very flesh of my being. But to do that, we have to have the appropriate part of us in service, which will engage, provoke, and open itself up to the essence of God, to the infinite circular light of God, and not just to the linear light of God. So when I'm saying to God, God, there's a code of Jewish law, there's a right and there's a wrong, There's a limit for everything. You're actually not allowed to give too much charity. And everything has its laws. I tried my best. That's it. What what else does God want from me? But then there is the Jew who doesn't talk about I tried my best. There's a Jew that doesn't talk about the limits of charity. If I, God forbid, needed a doctor, would I only say, "All right, listen, I only have a budget to do so many medical procedures. After that, what can I do? I'll die. Because the person's virtual reality is that there's no limits in physical life. I gotta give everything to be physically alive. What's about that paradigm in your spiritual life? I gotta do whatever it takes to keep my soul alive from suffocating. So understand that this war that exists between the holy foolish and the unholy foolish is the ultimate war. The ultimate war is not just whether I'm willing to keep the capacity of Jewish law and nothing beyond that. It's whether I'm able to transcend beyond my limitations of this I understand, this is what the Torah says. What do you want from me? If the code of Jewish law doesn't demand it from me, then leave me alone. Okay, let's go further. Let's go ahead now and quickly understand the layers of rationale. Let's talk about all of this. Let's talk about the layers of rationale. Let's talk about what we're talking about, holy foolishness. Okay? So, we speak about the first level. The first level in service. We're talking about service to God now. The first level in service to God is the study of Torah which allows me for direct understanding of God. Right? Maimonides says, Da, know God your God. How can you know God your God? Very simple. Because the verse says, o From my flesh I see God. What does that mean, from my flesh I see God? Again, it's very simple. We began with explaining that the linear light was contracted to fit into the vessel. And therefore, if I am able to see my inner self, I am able to see the linear light which fits in and gives life to each part of my inner self. So the direct understanding, this is the linear light of God. I can have that. But I can only have that with the linear light because the linear light is the light that was contracted from which my image was made. Thus, I can actually know the linear light of God. And I can do that through studying Torah, being very conscious of my surroundings and myself. Now, there's something called the next layer up. It's called the indirect understanding. The indirect understanding is what you and I know as a process of elimination. I don't know what he is, but I have clear certainty of what he is not. And when I keep on clarifying what he is not, ultimately I begin to have a faint image of what he is. I can't really wrap my head around what he is because he's beyond my capacity. But by keep on understanding what he's not, what he's not, what he's not, I begin to have somewhat of an understanding and appreciation of what he is. This refers to the circular light, the infinite circular light. When I keep on knowing that this entire concept of beginning and end, top and bottom, better and worse, stronger and weaker, when I understand that this does not apply to the infinite circular light, I keep on chipping away by process of elimination of what he is not. I begin to have some faint picture of what he is so I don't understand what linear really is but I know that it's not I'm sorry I don't really understand really picture and wrap my head around what circular is but I do know that circular is not linear so by process of elimination taking away every factor of the linear I'm left with somewhat of a faint picture of the circular So I don't understand what it means God has no beginning and no end because I don't understand that. I don't really understand what it means. What do you mean God created the world? What year did he create the world? Well, how old was he? These are questions which my mind doesn't understand. What happened the day before creation? I can't wrap my head around this because I am stuck within the umbrella of time. Everything has a past, present, and future. Everything has a definition, a shape, a form, in some shape or sort. That's why we refer to God, we call ourselves something from nothing. We're something and He's nothing. How dare we call God nothing and us something? What we're saying is that God defies anything that we can define as a something. So just by doing that, by clearly understanding what a something is, and understanding that god is not something i have somewhat of a faint picture of the nothing that i call god he is not stuck within these limitations of my something this refers to the circular light then there's a third layer the third layer is the absolute negation of any paradigm That is the essence. I cannot understand what it is, and I don't even understand what it's not. In this realm, intellect is absolutely impotent. It just has, it's not the tool, it's nothing you can do with it. Because the essence of the soul is not intellect, it's way beyond it. The essence of God is not intellect, and thus intellect is not the correct tool to understand the essence of God. And therefore, I will not be engaging or provoking or connecting or opening myself up to God by trying to understand Him either what He is or even what He's not. That isn't the right vessel to open myself up to God. What is the right vessel? The right vessel is the holy foolishness of the essence of our soul. Beyond all rationale and logic, I am dedicated and committed to God. Period. End of story. Thus we now understand why it takes the holy foolishness to truly make this A home for the essence of God. Because not the rationale, nor even the indirect rationale will work here. There is a teaching that says, No thought can grasp him at all. Thought is not the right thing. Thought is only about intellectual things. But thought is not the right thing to connect with God. So if you wanted to have only a home for the linear light, study Torah and mitzvahs and never fight with yourself. Just do what you got to do. If you want to connect with the circular light, you also have to have step up, not just from what I do understand, but let me understand what I don't understand. But if you want to be able to become transparent and become the home of the essence of God, you're going to have to rip through your intellect of what you understand and what you understand that you don't understand. And you're going to have to just have that foolish, illogical, this is the way it is. Why? Because I am absolutely committed to God. Not in my notes. I wouldn't put this in my notes. (laughs) But those who get to listen to the recording, will get to hear it. Someone tells me yesterday, we were talking about success. And the guy was giving a lecture on success. He told me this tape he heard about success. And he said, the person said that you have to be absolutely committed to success. And then he told the story. This guy is a very successful person today. He fell, he fell on his uh, derriere a couple of times, but today he's very wealthy. <laughs> and he gives an example He said, my girlfriend told me it's either her or the business. I looked at her and I said, what's your name again? You understand what we're talking about here? If right now there's a spiritual call, if I couldn't deal with sleeping eight hours because I had to do my work, then I have to give away an hour because I must learn my Torah. It's very simple. I have my daily studies. So this concept of the irrational, holy foolishness, foolishness is very deep. Let's go now to the next step. There is a a verse in Tehillim and this verse in Tehillim many times in shuls, in Chabad we don't do this. We just don't put things on the Chazan's podium or words on top of the Ark, but there are other shuls that they have very often on top of the Ark or in front of the Chazan the verse in Tehilim chapter sixteen and it says Shiviti Hashem samid. I constantly place God before me. The Baal Shem Tov has a very beautiful interpretation. The word I place also comes from the word Shaveh, all is equal. Shiviti Hashem lenegdi samid. Because God is always before me, therefore, all of Judaism is equal to me. Doesn't make a difference if it's about spiritual prayer, intellectual Torah study, or simple business ethics. Because it's all about God's will and being connected and transparent to God. And thus, everything is equal. That does not come from the rational. Neither the direct rational, neither the indirect rational. That is the revelation of the soul that says that I am absolutely committed to God, no matter what it is. If right now he wants me to tend to someone in the hospital, I will close my book of Talmud and go to the hospital. If right now he wants me to pray, then right now I'll sit and pray. If right now he wants me to sit with people around the Shabbos table who have no idea what the Aleph Bet is, then so it will be. Because it's not about my own understanding of my own spiritual pursuit. It's about me being absolutely transparent to the essence of God. This teaching will explain to us a custom of the Baal Shem Tov. The Baal Shem Tov had this very unique custom that he would walk over to people constantly, whether they were great scholars or they were simpletons. And he would always ask them, Nu, how's the livelihood? How's the home? How are the kids? Didn't make a difference if you are a Talmudic scholar and he could have engaged you in an unbelievable Torah thought, or you were a simpleton who didn't know much more than how to milk a cow. He always had the same question. And the reason why he had that question is, is because he always wanted to solicit that one answer, Baruch Hashem. Why is that? Because the ultimate foolishness, the ultimate holy foolishness of a Jew is, no matter what's going on in my life, Baruch Hashem. It gets even deeper than that. When the Jew says Baruch Hashem, whether he's a Talmud scholar or he's a little five-year-old boy that's just learning in Cheder. When they say the words Baruch Hashem, they don't mean the circular light. They don't mean the infinite light. They don't mean the linear light. What do they mean? Thank you, God, the essence of God. Thus this holy foolishness of a Jew, when you ask him if his cow gave milk this week, he's going to answer you, Baruch Hashem, the essence of God that always holds my hand through every step, of my journey of life. That is the revelation of the ultimate foolishness, holy foolishness of a Jew. I belong to you, God, not your light, not your holiness, to you, God. My cow's not giving milk, it's you, God. This week I made an extra couple of dollars. It's you, God. I finally understood what the Toys says. It's you, God. Baruch Hashem. That's what the Baal Shantav is talking about. So in closing. In closing, the ultimate relationship with God in which we invite the essence of God into our life and into our world is through the service of eskafya, subduing, and hapcha transforming. This is the order of events. First, we must battle the unholy foolishness of arrogance and self-will run awry. Even though it burns within our bosom, we must subdue it from expressing itself in thought, speech, and action. That's it. I can't stop what's going in my heart, but can I have enough subduing power, iskafya, to not let it express itself in my thought, speech, and action. The next stage after that is, is Hapcha. Not only am I controlling it shouldn't come out in our thought, speech, and action, but I'm actually battling to weaken the passion to kill the passion within the heart. That takes already a greater openness, transparency to God. Then there is the ultimate experience, which is the ultimate is hapcha, that I don't belittle, I don't weaken, I actually transform. That that huge passion of unholy foolishness becomes the impetus, it becomes the experience of my absolute holy foolishness in my absolute illogical transrational foolish dedication and commitment to God regardless of what it is and that's what this mimer is all about opening ourselves up to the essence of God which comes through the essence of our soul which is not intellect it's actually considered foolish illogical, absolute commitment and dedication to God and His will. Thank you.